Hello and welcome to a new edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. This edition is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years. AT&T, who reminds us it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. And Back Nine Greens, whose work is known worldwide. Remember that golf art starts with Back Nine Greens. This is Marty Lockman, and we again have a story of the twists and turns that brings us to where we are today. Our guest for this episode is Paul Skillern, who, with his wife Dana, have been members of our community since 2005. As in the past episodes, we will talk about Paul's successful business accomplishments. But first, let's start with the personal experiences that led to his being here at Bighorn, and that story starts in Eugene, Oregon. Paul, thanks for joining me today, and please share with us your story. Thanks, Marty. It's good to be here. Hopefully, it will be an interesting story. I was born in Eugene, Oregon in 1950, third child to John and Nadine Skillern. I have an older brother, John Michael, an older sister, Marity, and a younger brother, Bill. Eugene was a great place to grow up in. It was a conservative town at the time, a university town. Our family were all mighty Oregon Duck fans. I grew up on University Street, which was about a three and a half block walk to the famous MacArthur Court and Hayward Field. And because of that, part of the shaping of me was athletics. And I loved going down to Hayward Field and being with Bill Bowerman and the track crew and running and jumping, going to basketball games. After school, grade school, racing up to Howe Field to be the first one up there to hopefully be the bat boy for Don Kirsch and his baseball team. It was a fun way to grow up. We had a great time as a family. My father was in the 10th Mountain Division, and so mountaineering and skiing was a big part of our family activities. Every weekend from the time the snow fell till the last day of skiing, we would go over to Bend, Oregon and ski every weekend. We'd cram into a one or two bedroom motel and spend the weekend Friday evening, Saturday, drive home Sunday, repeat the same thing the following weekend. Summers were pretty much the same. Go to the lake and go water skiing. Until my father one day said, Paul, it's time that you learn how to work. And so agriculture was a big thing in, in the Willamette Valley, and there were bean fields everywhere. So early in the morning, you'd go down to the Condon grade school, hop on an open-air truck with 20 or 30 of your favorite friends and go bean picking for the day at two cents a pound. About how old were you when this was? I was probably eight or nine years old. I didn't make much money then because by the end of the day, everybody was getting a little tired and playful, and we'd get into bean fights, and half of my beans would end up in somebody else's pile. But we had a great time. It was a good way to spend the day and stay out of trouble. You were taught a work ethic. Where you started with the skiing and, the, and being on the lake, it sounds like an idyllic 
life, to be able to have that as a child. And in that area, those things were all available to you. But it was also important for your parents, specifically your dad in this case, to say there's a work ethic part of this equation also. Yeah, everybody had their chores. Mine was mowing the lawn or setting the barbecue or uh, Saturdays helping my mother clean up the house, going next door and helping our friends with projects and them coming to our house and helping out with projects. It was very much a community, very, very friendly. Everybody was neighborly and had a good time. Lots of kids in the neighborhood. One of our neighbors, young boy, probably he's probably five or six or so when he ended up on our back door uh, Sunday morning and he was hungry. He was one of nine kids. And so usually once or twice every month, my father would cook him breakfast on Sunday morning as well. And we always had a good time. We'd end up down on Potter Street, oftentimes in the summertime, playing softball, you know, 15 or 20 kids out in the middle of the street. In the wintertime, when it would snow, we'd all go over to Harris Street, which is the largest hill in the neighborhood and sled and the parents would light a fire at the bottom of the hill and have cocktails while we had a good time. So it really was an idyllic childhood. You just don't see that today, which is unfortunate. Well, and a big part of that is, as you already talked about, the sense of community. Everybody looked out for each other. In many situations, you didn't lock your doors. You didn't have to worry about those sorts of things. Everybody truly did take care of each other. Yeah, and no, I was it was that way exactly. Down on Agate Street, there was a little ice cream store called uh, Del Hoffs, and my younger brother, at the age of three, ended up down at Del Hoffs, stark ass naked, and one of our neighbors brought him home. <laughs> <laughs> everybody knew everybody. We would go down to a neighbor's house once a month after church and get our haircuts, and so it was that that type of an upbringing. So now you're starting to work, you're working with the bean fields, you're involved in sports. What sports did you get involved in yourself? I started a year earlier than I was allowed to. I I lied about my age and I started playing uh, baseball. And that was my first organized sport that I got involved in. I played basketball, track and field, like to run uh, down at uh, the track. We'd water ski a lot. I got pretty good at that. The biggest and probably the most important influence on me growing up was competitive skiing. I started skiing when I was four, but I started skiing competitively when I was 11 over at Mount Bachelor. They had what they called the Mighty Might program. I was involved in the Mighty Might program, and we'd ski race, and then you'd move up to the juniors, and you were junior novice, junior intermediate, and junior expert. So I did that all the way through high school, and then continued that in college as well. It was a lot of fun. I became fairly proficient at it and became a member of the Oregon junior team that traveled to Sun Valley and Tahoe for what they call the Western States Junior Championships. It also, my best event was downhill and giant slalom. I liked to go fast. I wasn't as good at turning as I was at going fast. But you'd fall and get hurt, and through the common course of events and ski, Skiing competitively, I broke a leg, a thumb, three ribs, but really enjoyed it. I got to know a lot of people from other parts of the Northwest. Was fortunate enough to have some really good coaching. A guy by the name of Frank Kamak coached many Olympians, and he was an influencer on, on me on, on the importance of how to compete, how to win, how to lose, how to fall, and how to get up and finish. 
Well, they always say it's when you fall, it's, that's when you learn the person. You got to come back from those kinds of either injuries or f not failures, but challenges. Yes, and in skiing, you fall a lot. And when you're going 60, 70 miles an hour, it hurts a little bit. But you get back up and you go. And it helped develop a, a work ethic in me and I learned to be dedicated to something, to work hard, pay attention, look and listen, and you learn a lot. I've always been a visual person. It hasn't helped me much in golf, but it's a lot easier to look at something for me and see, oh, that's the way it's done, and then I, it's a little bit easier to replicate. I feel the same way, but again, learning how to ski at a young age, I'm a great believer in muscle memory also, so it would seem to me that that would help. You still probably do go out and ski, and you're very proficient at it. If you had taken up golf at the same point in your life, yeah. who's to say you wouldn't be in the U.S. Open? Maybe I've gone too far. <laughs> but you enjoyed this. You were encouraged, I would think, by your parents. This was something they encouraged you to continue to do. Was this also something the family did together? Yeah, it was all part of the family weekend. We'd go over on Friday night. We'd be up at the mountain. We'd go right away and start running gates. Uh, we'd, back then, we didn't have access to the types of transportation up and down the hill. So we went over to a place called the Cinderacone, and we'd hike up and down and got in pretty good shape that way. And so you'd hike up, ski down, hike up, ski down, do that in the morning, break for lunch, go back and do it all afternoon until 4 o'clock. And then you're done for the day, and you go home and have dinner and get up and do it all over again. It's a lot different today. Um, they have lifts that you get a lot more runs in. And you're absolutely correct, Mario. I mean, skiing is like uh, learning to walk. Once you've done it, it's, it, it's repetition. And I'm a little over 70 now, and I think I ski as well, if not better, than I did when I was a kid. And again, you still love it love to do and it. And it's still part of your life. Yeah, we live in Sun Valley, and so it's it's a natural. It's 10 minutes to the to lift from our house, and, and it's a great mountain, and Dane and I enjoy it. We love skiing with our children and grandchildren. They're over there every weekend, and it's really fun to watch them uh, develop. Uh, they're the oldest are 10, and, and I can't keep up with them. I'm sure you give them a run for their money. Well, no, they're, they're pretty good. <laughs> but, but, I, don't, I don't like to fall anymore. <laughs> it was also life lessons learned. It wasn't just interested in the competition, interested in the work that had to be put in, because none of this happens without hard work. But I'm sure that there was a lot of life lessons that you learned in that that have served you well as you've moved along in life. It, it's a matter of being dedicated to something, dedicated to a process, and always, always, always trying to get better and learning from your mistakes. We've all had plenty of those, but you learn from them and you get better. Nothing happens without a lot of effort. You can get lucky occasionally, but usually it's the hard work, the time, the effort that pay off in the end. Would you agree that when you have passion for something, that drives you too, because the work doesn't seem like work when you have passion for something. And that can be in business as well as it is in skiing or anything else. But if you have passion for something, you have, I believe you have a greater chance for success in whatever you do. There's no question about it, because it's uh, not work. It's fun. It's enjoyable. I had a great time doing it. I got to go to different parts of the country to ski, and, and it opened up opportunities. I met a lot of people. 
And importantly also, I was around a lot of adults that teach you things. And, and you, you know, you're around them. You learn how to grow up maybe, maybe a little bit sooner than you might have if you weren't exposed to those things. So now you've done this through high school. You said that even in college, where did you go to school? And although skiing was a part of it, tell me a little bit more about that college experience. College was a, an extraordinary time for me. I had an absolute ball. I had so much fun. I was there for five years instead of four. As I said, I did have the opportunity to ski. I skied for the team for four years. In my last year, not only skied with the team, but I also was the coach. At Oregon, there are several disciplines. There's the alpine skiing, and there's cross-country, and there's ski jumping. It was easy to find the alpine skiers, but a little bit more difficult to find the people that would do the cross-country and the ski jumping. They had a competition called the Ski Meister, and the Ski Meister was one that did everything. I did that, and it was particularly difficult my last year because I was trying to coach and organize and get people in the right spots, but I also had to compete, too. I was worn out by the end of every day when we were involved in the competitions, but some situations really I had to push myself physically to uh, do it. I, I remember one time at, at Bachelor, it was, it was our, uh, we were hosting it, so I was organizing and competing, and I went cross-country race, which is 10 kilometers, hadn't had anything to eat for breakfast and hadn't had anything to eat for lunch, and I got about three-quarters of the way around. There wasn't a lot of gas left in the engine, and I, but I made it around, I finished, got some oranges, and got at the finish line and said, hey, you need to go to the first aid shack. So they took me up the first aid deal and said, asked me how I was getting home, and Dana was with me. And I said, well, go up to the bar and find Dana. She'll be there with friends and tell her I'm down here. And when she's ready to go home, come pick me up. That was an interesting weekend. It's funny that you bring up the oranges because I remember whatever sport you were playing, if you were dehydrated, if you were tired, oranges was the solution to the problem. That was the magic. And it did help. I have to tell you, that night a, um, a, a beer tasted pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> so now you've, I mean, you've been involved in skiing. You've done well in school. What did you see as the next step for you, not in retrospect, but at that time? Really, when I entered the University of Oregon, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I started out thinking architecture might be fun, but after a semester taking an architecture class, I figured that wasn't my calling. And so I started taking uh, business classes and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Business Administration, which fit me pretty well. Uh, I, I, had, um, I was in a fraternity there, an ATO, had a lot of really good friends. And our fifth year, we moved out, lived up on a hill in a very nice home, six-bedroom home. I got lucky and landed the job with the Rainier Brewing Company as campus representative for the brewing company. And the pay wasn't great, but I got four cases of beer a week and a keg a month free. And the previous guy that had the job wasn't very successful. He kept all the beer to himself. And I, we didn't do that. We had a great party house. And so we would have uh, parties and I'd provide the beer and, and um, at the end of the year, we had a pretty nice dividend from all the returns. Plus, after the 
parties. A lot of times they were hosted by uh, sororities. Part of the deal was they'd pay us $75 for the use of the house, but the next day they had to come clean up. So usually once or twice a month, at least the house would get clean. So that was a lot of fun, and Rainier Bureau went from being number three or number four on campus to number one. It was a pretty good lesson. And don't be afraid to merchandise and, 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 and all of the things, that, all the tools that you have, spread them around. Well, it was also a great lesson to you in a time when this term wasn't used a lot, but branding. That's the important factor is to brand or create a need for this brand. And that spreads throughout campus or throughout at least the people that were, you were experiencing this with. Absolutely. I was a paid advertisement. And anytime, time, let's just say our house became fairly popular. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would bet it did. You have this job with Rainier. That's not going to be forever. What's the next position or a next job that you took part in that uh, started this business career for you? Didn't know quite what to do. I, I thought about going into real estate. My father sold his business and was in the real estate business. And he said, you know, that'd be nice, Paul, but I think you'd be better off if you got out of town and did something different. And so I interviewed with several banks, Wells Fargo, uh, U.S. Bank, uh, in Oregon, and then uh, Union Bank down in Los Angeles, and ended up getting a, an offer from both Union Bank and Wells Fargo Bank. And I chose Wells Fargo and went to San Francisco and, and started out as a branch officer trainee. What was his reason, independence? What was the reason for him saying, you need to get out of town? I never really asked him, but in hindsight, I'm sure it was uh, Paul... Uh, that would be the easy road. You need to go out and establish something on your own. Get, you don't know what he'd been in San Francisco other than Dana's family lived down in the Bay Area. It pushed me to become more independent. I was always a little bit spoiled because I lived a couple blocks from home, and if I didn't want to do my laundry, I'd bring it home and my mother would do it. Well, down in San Francisco, that's kind of tough. I'd, so I'd have to do all that. And, and it wasn't a big deal because she already taught me how to iron my shirts. That's about all I had to do is iron the shirt and put a suit on and go to work. I think it's great advice, by the way. I mean, I think that that's, uh, you know, for somebody to go out on their own and learn that early in life, I think is really an important factor. How did you meet Dana? That's a f kind of a funny story. I met her two and a half years before we started to date. We went out on a uh, double date. The gal that set this up was a friend of mine, and I was supposed to be Dana's date, and my friend, best friend Bruce Hoyt was going to be um, Roxy's date. Well, it turned out I was Roxy's date, and his date was Dana. As luck would have it, Dana and I spent a lot of time together that night, and Bruce and Roxy went off and did their own thing. And so the next day, I went to Bruce and said, I really had a good time with Dana. Do you mind if I ask her out? He said, well, no, I kind of liked her too. I'd rather you not. So I didn't. And a couple years later, I saw her. At, we had a function with the Alpha Fees and at a softball game, and I saw Dana again. The spark was lit again and so i figured bruce had enough time to date dana if he wanted to so i started dating her and it's turned out very very good well we only dated for eight years 
<laughs> okay. But it was kind of a long-distance uh, romance because... You were in San Francisco at this time? Or well, I, we were both... Uh, I was a senior and she was a junior, and Dana was an art major, and her father said, you know, you're going to graduate in a year or two, and you're, I hope you're really good at art because that's where your money's going to come from. And so she panicked and changed her uh, degree to architecture, interior architecture, which is a five-year program. And the first year it was great because he said, you know, Danny, if you want to be in architecture, you really should work for an architect to see if that's really what you want to do. So the first year she came down to San Francisco and we were together for that year, but then she had to go back and finish her degree. It was back and forth for a while, but it was pretty well time-tested relationship. Of course, we had our ups and downs, but as you say, it's worked out pretty well. You go down to San Francisco, and banking is what you're in now. Yes. How does that evolve? Well, I started out as a branch officer trainee. My first experience with the bank was working in the Piedmont Highlands branch, which is about five blocks away from where Dana grew up. So I knew a lot of the customers. The uh, manager of the bank was kind of astounded that all of these ladies would come in and say, Skilly, will you help me with this? Can you help me balance my account? And Paul, I need to get in my box to get some bonds. And Will you help me? And, and so I did that for three months and then went over to Alameda and worked in operations. And then they, they, they thought that this young man from Eugene, Oregon has been sheltered. So they sent me down to 86th and Elmhurst, which was a very tough area of Oakland. And that was interesting, too. I remember helping this elderly lady, and she was having trouble balancing her checking account. And so I sat down with her and went through it, and we got to the end. And I said, well, you know, you've spent more money than you have in your bank account, so you need to make a deposit. You're overdrawn. And she looked at me, and she said, Mr. Skillen, I can't be overdrawn. I still has checks left. I said, very, very nice. Why don't we just close your account and we'll forget about your overdraft. I would suggest you get some family involved to try and help you manage your personal affairs a little bit better, which she wasn't. She was very thankful and very, very nice lady. And it was, it was a different experience for me. Well, and again, that's at a time when banks were about personal service. Absolutely. And you really got involved with the client. And there was that relation. It was a relationship business. But this must have been some culture shock for you going in there. It was, but it was a great education for me. This lady would continue to come in and say hello Mr. Skiller and how are you and so it was, it was very nice but at, um, I, uh, the people that I um, knew in the bank knew that I didn't want to be in the um, branch uh, system and so um, I was lucky enough to be a guinea pig in their um, a new pr training program for commercial lending and so I went to the uh, East uh, Bay headquarters and worked with their commercial banking people, the commercial lenders, and learned spreadsheets. We didn't have spreadsheets then. We did it all with cut and paste, which was incredibly laborious. And, and, but I you know, learned a lot about financial statement analysis. And Dick Cooley started a group with a bank called Commercial Banking 
group, and it was a uh, mid-corporate lending operation where we actually had salespeople that would go out and call on businesses, and then they would develop relationships. Then they would introduce the customers to us as a team. We'd go out and and um, and uh, develop a relationship, and then develop a plan for that business set up lines of credits and there while it was a competitive environment because there was another nissan store across the river um we could buy it for a song and it would we could make some money on it so i ran the nissan store from 82 to uh, 86 we went from selling maybe 40 or 50 new cars to up to over 100 and then nissan brought in a hitter from Texas, and he turned over 70% of the dealer body in the Northwest. And the way you get your cars typically is earn and turn. You sell one and you get another one. Well, the regional manager carved out about 40% of the cars he was getting and brought in new dealers and fed them. So we went from selling over 100 new down to about 30 new. So I went up to Portland and said, you know, this isn't making much sense for us. And so I want to move it over to Valley River next to our Ford store and I'll build you a showroom and we'll consolidate uh, parts and service. It'll be seamless to the customer. They'll still come in the Nissan side. But he said, you know, I knew you were coming up here to talk about that, and it's not going to happen. No way. It's just not going to happen. So I left and immediately started to look for somebody to buy the business, which I found somebody. I found a, a guy out of California that thought he was really good entered into an asset purchase agreement, and then Dan and I went down to Mexico to celebrate. Three days into our celebration, I, I broke my hip water skiing, came back early to a, um, a Nissan warranty audit with no notice. And so I obviously wasn't very happy, and I couldn't walk. And I said, you, you gentlemen need to leave. So they did for the afternoon. I called our attorney, and he said, Paul, you need to invite them back so they can finish their audit. Well, they wanted they wanted a hundred thousand dollars to uh, settle claims. They basically were just trying to get a pound of flesh out on me before they before I left. And I I said, well, you have a couple choices. You can charge me the hundred thousand dollars and I'll pay it. And, but then you're going to have me as your dealer for the next thirty years, and I will be a royal pain in your ass. Or you can uh, be reasonable, and I'll give you $10,000, and then you can have this new dealer that you really liked. So I wrote him a check for $10,000 and left. But I'll never be a Nissan dealer again. That was a, an incredible education because it was, it was very, very competitive. And I, again, I had to be all things to all people and was, was there a lot. Uh, so it was nice to get back to Kendall Ford. And from there? From there, we purchased interesting story the, the honda dealer had changed hands and had financial difficulties and ended up in bankruptcy and i knew the um, the trustee for the bankrupt estate and so i spent some time talking to him about the situation they had sold the business to another outfit who bought it just before they declared bankruptcy so they had a legal issue we hired a, a bankruptcy attorney expert, 
And he said, well, you need to find a way to get into the uh, court so you can put in a competing bid. Otherwise, they're going to accept the offer from the existing dealer. And so I knew a couple people that had businesses that were not being paid by the bankrupt estate. And we went to them and they said, well, we'd much rather have you than this other guy. So they made a petition with the court to have us come in with a competing bid, which would be higher. And the judge said, fine. So we went into court. Uh, the morning that we went into court, Walter left town. He, he said he didn't want to be anywhere near this thing. Both of us had met with the trustee, and he didn't think, he thought that might be a little bit awkward if that ever became known. And so he said, one thing for sure, Paul. He said, son-in-law, don't come out of that court without a Honda franchise. And so... The judge said, your offer's compelling, Mr. Skillern, Mr. Money. Coincidentally, the guy's name was Money. Mr. Money, do you have anything to say about that? And he said, well, yeah, well, Your Honor, we'll raise our offer by $50,000. And I said, Your Honor, we'll raise it another $50,000. And Money thought about it for a minute. He said, well, we'll, we'll bump it up another 50000 And I said, Your Honor, we'll bump it up $100,000. Money said, your Honor, can we have a recess? And so we went out in the hall and talked for a little bit. They, and they had a couple of other businesses that they were part of this that was outside of the bankruptcy realm. And we also had an offer in to buy the uh, Mazda franchise. And so we weren't able to work anything out. We went in and and the judge said, you know, I this is really pretty interesting. Mr. Money, what do you have to say? And he said, we'll go up another $25,000. And the judge said, you know, this is better than going to Vegas. And so I bumped it up another $50,000. And finally, we went out and we gave up the Mazda franchise and we got the Honda franchise. It was an incredibly good investment. But stressful at the time, I'm sure. Well, at the time, it was kind of fun, really. I mean, how many times do you get to go bid for a Honda business and a bankruptcy court, not worry about getting chewed out for spending too much. <laughs> well, you had a goal in mind, or you yeah. were given a goal, yeah. and you accomplished it. Yeah. And your father-in-law was happy when this was. Oh yeah, the his job was done. Yeah, he was delighted. And as you said, it turned out very, very good. It, it was a it was a terrific business. And then uh, another year later, we picked up the Acura business and moved it in with Honda. Another year later, 1992, Lexus was just coming around. We put in a, an offer to be the Le Lexus dealer in Eugene, Oregon, and we were awarded that franchise, which was incredible. It, organizationally, it was incredible because I told everybody at Kendall Ford, I said, you know, you have to, when, when we put the Kendall name up, Kendall Lexus will be taking care of the customer in an extraordinary way. That's just the way it is. That, that's what we do. That's going to raise the bar for you because you have to provide our customers who are buying Lexus and Fords at the same level of service. So it, it really was transformational for our, co our company in terms of uh, customer service and uh, processes and procedures. And, and we were way ahead of the game in terms of being customer-oriented automobile dealers. I think part of my deal was if you have a problem with a customer, you need to take care of it. And if it gets to me, I'm going to give them whatever they want 
so you might as well just take care of them. And, and it really did create a whole new culture for our business and a, and a very positive one. Well, that leads me to a, another question. What, what do you view as your business philosophy? In our business, and I think it's universally true, uh, customer's king. And so I believe very firmly that we had to be the best in the business in terms of customer service and customer service satisfaction. The other element of my management philosophy was not only is the customer uh, very, very important, but our employees are extra extraordinarily important. And we, need to, we needed to uh, build a, a better level of trust and cooperation internally not only in terms of um, the way the, the employee felt about the company that she's working, they're working for, how we treated them. So we came up with all sorts of new initiatives. And one of them in, in our search to become a more employee-centric business, um, many people had a, a feeling that it would be really, really good to be more community-oriented as well. And we were to a certain extent before, but we did everything very, very quietly in terms of donations and contributions and so forth like that. Our employees became involved in uh, all of our philanthropic activities in the community. And we, we did Christmas things for kids and, and lots of different fundraising events that our employees were involved in. We sponsored the, uh, at the time it was the Buy.com tour for 12 years in Eugene, which is now the Corn Ferry, I think. Correct. So we raised in a fairly short period of time over a million dollars for our local community and, and things that our employees wanted to support. And so that brought the employees much more closely aligned with our corporate culture and, and opened up communications. Uh, we, we developed ways to communicate so when things did get sideways, we'd sit down and figure them out. So customer care and employee care, and most importantly is having an attitude of honesty and integrity in everything that we do. Well, and also from what you've just said, the employees then become vested in the culture of the company. Too, Absolutely. what you're doing, which, you know, that almost that pride of ownership themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I just I just got a I just had a phone call yesterday for a, from one of our area managers who's worked for me for forty years. He's retiring, <laughs> and I said, Dwayne, you can't retire. I'm still here. Well, your family. Yeah, brings me to the next question, and that is, what qualities do you look for in people that work with you and for you? Once again, it's honesty, integrity, work ethic. Ours is not an easy business. Sure, I'm overstating it, but it's a lot of time away from your family, and, and you need to have a, a good family life um, because it'll be stressed. And so you need to have good relationships, how to, how to have um, and develop strong relationships with the people closest with you, but also the, your customers and your uh, fellow employees. You have to be able to get along. Well, also, as it is with Hugh and Dana, there almost has to be a partnership outside of work that allows for the work product to be what it's going to be, to maximize that opportunity. Because if you don't have a good support system in place, it's difficult to spend those hours and spend that time that you have to do to be successful. Time is a very important element 
everybody's life. And in our business, a lot of times, much of your time is with the people that you're working with, more so than they are with the family that you live with. In order to retain good people, you have to make sure that everybody's getting along so it's not an adversarial situation. It has to be fun. If the work's not fun, then it's drudgery, and then you're not going to be as productive. And so we try and make their work fun, rewarding, both psychologically and financially. Paul, with everything that you've accomplished, what drives you today? I like to win, and I like to grow things. I like to improve things. And I enjoy watching people grow and develop. I really have a strong sense of pride in, in seeing how um, many of our people have, have, have come up through the ranks and have, have done so well, both personally and professionally. And, and I like buying car dealerships. I mean, <laughs> I, get, I get a lot of enjoyment out of putting deals together and taking something that sometimes is broken, sometimes not, but at the end of the day, always trying to make them better. You touched on this a little bit earlier. Tell me about the people that have had the greatest influence on your life. Um, yeah, that that's pretty easy. Dana's father, Walter, was... Uh, um, incredibly instrumental. I mean, he, we had our rough spots, but he taught me a lot, and, and he, was, um, he had the wisdom to uh, put really good people between himself and, and me um, uh, so we could still have a good family relationship. Um, I, was, I watched him, and I listened to him, um, um, uh, he he had um, um, a lot of wisdom. He was in, he was very conservative, and I learned that that was a very good trait, especially during difficult economic periods of time. Um, uh, one of his favorite sayings, I'll never forget it, and I quote it often: "Is uh, once things become tough, you can't cut deep enough." or fast enough. And that happened to us uh, back in March at the start of the pandemic. And, and uh, we went from having a record first quarter to having no business. And so we cut 30% of our employees in a matter of two weeks, furloughed them. But within two weeks, we started hiring them back. Uh, another person that would have been Frank Kamak, who was my first ski coach I, he was he taught me the lessons of falling and getting back up and finishing um, um, uh, learning how to compete another one is uh, interestingly enough uh, another Kamak Nathan Kamak he was um, I, I was in the I started playing the string bass in fifth grade he was the teacher uh, they don't have those in schools anymore but he was the music teacher and he convinced me that I should keep on playing the string bass all the way through high school and, and junior symphony and, and all the plays and everything else. And I was very, very grateful because he, in, in hindsight, it, that introduced me to a lot of people that I never would have seen before or got to, gotten to know before. Bob O'Sullivan and Dick Ramanteria, who guided me through that eight to ten year process of getting to the point where Walter had enough confidence in me to 
uh, start growing the business in a different way. Our attorney, Maury Galen, he, he was another guy that carried a umbrella over my head with, with uh, Walter. I said, Walter, you got to be patient. <laughs> and, and it was fun because we'd go to meetings up in Portland, and Maury was incredibly bright, was a terrific counselor for us uh, over the years. And on the way back, it was a, always a great way to start the conversation. I'd say, Walter, did you really understand everything that Maury was talking about? And he'd say, well, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> so those are just a few people, but they were always people that I could learn things from. Go to the bank, so to speak, in terms of developing a sense of who I am and, and confidence in what I'm doing. It gave me confidence where... I think when I first got into the business, I didn't have that level of confidence. They helped me grow and helped me succeed. And family is a big part of things for you today. I know that. You spend a lot of time with family uh, when you can. Yeah, more. I, it's really enjoyable. I do more now than I ever have before. I remember when Dan and I were first starting out, I was commuting back and forth between Eugene and Medford. I'd go down on a Monday morning and get back Saturday afternoon. And when I get back on Saturday and go to bed, our dog uh, Chevy had my side of the bed. (laughs) (laughs) Over the years, the last 40 years, I don't have that to compete with anymore, but I get to spend the time with Dana on the golf course and and we live in Sun Valley. And so I moved our corporate headquarters from Eugene over to Boise in 2012, I think it was. It might have been later than that. I moved every, the whole family over so they can come over and on the weekends and in the summer or winter. And so we do spend a lot of time with the, the, our children and our grandchildren. It's very, very enjoyable. How many dealerships do you presently have? Uh, I think we have, I wrote it down here someplace. It's a lot. 40 different rooftops. 60 diff- 61 different franchise agreements in Eugene, Oregon, Bend, Oregon, Meridian, Idaho, Nampa, Idaho, Anchorage, Alaska, Wasilla, Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska, most recently Marysville, Washington. And in between that, we had a uh, Subaru store in Missoula, Montana. We had a Dodge store in um, Cottage Grove, just south of Eugene, and then a Ford store in Cottage Grove, uh, just south of Eugene, and we sold both of those. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, You touched on this during this pandemic, during this, I mean, we've never, obviously never seen anything like it before. How is that, you touched on a little bit, how does that impact the business so far this year up to this point? There aren't enough words to describe it. Um, Initially, it was, as I said earlier, it was a a huge shock because nobody knew what was going to happen. We developed several strategic initiatives that were going to take advantage of what we thought was going to be a really, really good year. Our used car inventory had been, we built up to record levels. Um, We we had a, uh, we have a uh, budget budget. a rental car operation up in Alaska for the state, and we'd increased the uh, rental fleet up there. 
and we'd uh, increased our new vehicle levels to pretty high levels as well, and then everything just absolutely stopped. And as I said, oh, excuse me, um, um, so right after, the, right after that, things started to pick up. And once again, we were lucky because we had inventory and we had, especially the budget rental cars, uh, nobody had inventory in Alaska. And, and um, so inventories around um, the country were, were being de um, reduced pretty significantly and manufacturers weren't getting the uh, plants up. And so with lower supply and higher demand, margins came up. So we had a, we had, we started out last year with a record first quarter, despite missing 15 days of March. We had a record second quarter, a record third quarter, and a record fourth quarter for a record year. It was absolutely amazing. And this year is starting out about the same kind of pace. So I never could have imagined what was going to happen. Everybody was incredibly nervous. We'd built up our uh, inventory level significantly um, based upon some business initiatives that we'd identified earlier. Our rental fleet at, up in budget in Alaska had a lot of inventory. And then everything stopped. As it turned out, that we were incredibly lucky, again, because uh, manufacturers weren't going to start up their production for a while. Demand came back faster than anybody imagined it. Uh, supplies of inventories around the, the country uh, from dealer standpoint went down pretty quickly. So with um, high demand and low supply, margins improved significantly. It did take a little bit of extra time for the parts and service business to come back, but it's, it's pretty much back to normal now. And so we had a, um, a record uh, first quarter, despite having a uh, uh, missing 15 days in March and 15 days in uh, April. The second quarter was a record. The third quarter was a record. And the fourth quarter was a record. And 2021 is starting out uh, very, very well um, uh, also. So... Uh, we're definitely going to have challenges going forward. Uh, manufacturers are going to have um, lower supply still because there's a problem with microchips uh, globally. And cars today have a lot of microchips. Uh, so supply on the new side is going to be difficult. We, we developed a... Um, a distribution system of bringing um, vehicles in from Canada that was just getting up and running. Um, that was going to supply four to 600 units a month to us on a wholesale and a retail level. That's probably not going to happen at that kind of level just because things are tied up in Canada as well. So we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I, I, I have confidence in our industry at least having a good 2021 
and it's going to be different, but I, I think we have all of the things we need to have in place, so we'll be successful. The last question I have for you is when I ask everyone, and Paul, what advice would you give the 20-year-old you today? <laughs> the first word that comes to mind is uh, be patient. Uh, Rome wasn't built in a day. Number two, keep your ears open. You'll always learn a lot by listening. And number three, this is a quote from Walter, don't be the impetuous youth. Listen to your elders. Get all the advice you can from people that have been around that you have confidence and that you have a relationship with. Be honest, be straightforward, and handle all things that you do with great integrity. Paul, I really appreciate you coming in here and doing this. Uh, I know that you were very humble about your accomplishments, and this was out of your comfort zone to come in here and talk about your business yourself. But again, I truly believe that these sorts of conversations can have great benefit, not only in people in the community that get to know you better and know about your background and about your accomplishments, but also these podcasts are shared with young people. And these life lessons, these kinds of experiences that you've had, and the fact that life does have twists and turns, but hard work, uh, good work ethic, dealing with people is extremely important. And hopefully this helps some other people too, as I mentioned to you before you came in here. But thank you again for coming. My pleasure. Once again, we are very appreciative of Leeds and Sunfine Jewelers, an integral part of our community and a supporter of our broadcast since the very beginning. And AT&T, with the support of Frank Jules, has been a partner with us through the past two seasons. And Back Nine Greens, who has just joined us this year, through the support of their president, Dominic Nappi, we urge you to support these companies and individuals as they have been so supportive of our efforts in bringing these stories to our community. We look forward to being with you for the next episode of the Bighorn Podcast in the very near future. Thank you for listening.